0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Are Beautiful. And if you didn't hear it today already, let me say it to you right now. You are wait for it beautiful that's right my name is Lawrence Zarian but since we are going to be instant fast friends you can call me LZ on this podcast some of my uh, closest friends from television film movies influencers designers they're going to be here with me with us talking about how they feel what makes them feel beautiful and when they look in the mirror what do they see it's going to be a fun ride Trust us, trust me, and let's have some fun. Hey, and by the way, let me say it again. You are beautiful. And one more thing. You are beautiful is brought to you by the vibrant doc, Dr. Stacy J. Stevenson. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of You Are Beautiful with Lawrence Zarian. Now, as you all know, what I love the most about my job going on. Thursday, is that I've had this absolute joy and pleasure of helping women look in the mirror and love what they see. That has always been my mantra. That has always been my motto. And there are people in this world, pun intended, that are cut from the exact same cloth. And if I had to pick one person in this business, in this world, that I want to be in my next lifetime, is Mr. Timothy McKenzie Gunn, New York Times bestseller, Emmy winner, and one of America's sexiest men. Hello, my friend.
1: How are you, Lawrence? What a flattering introduction. I'd be happy to trade places with you.
0: I know, but here's the thing. You would have had to have committed to sweatpants 20 years ago.
1: Maybe it should have happened 20 years ago.
0: That's very funny. Yeah. I mean, so what was it like putting on your first pair of sweatpants?
1: Well, because it was for the purpose of of joining the fencing club and starting the lessons, it was exhilarating. I loved it. And and you can't be on the fencing strip and not have freedom and agility of movement. You can't be held back in that way. It's challenging enough mentally and physically.
0: The thing that I love about you, though, and well, first of all, just so you know, for the next hour, however long I'm blessed to have you, it is going to be a Tim Gunn gush fest oh. because you are the nicest, kindest man. And I just I just want to get to this quickly. You know, I, I was a model. I was modeling. And... I had realized that there just weren't these experts on television that were basically talking the talk that knew what they were talking about when it came to fashion. So when I came back from, Europe and then New York. And I was in LA, I was modeling on all these different TV shows. And I said to one of my producers, Hey, let me do a fashion segment. And she went, well, what would you talk about? She wasn't being dismissive, but they only knew me as a model. Mm -hmm. So I said to my producer, Belinda, I said, never thinking she was going to follow up with the question. I said, Oh, you know what? What if I show women how to dress from their man's side of the closet? And she went, I love that. What would that be? And I was like, oh, I didn't think that far. And I said, well, what if I take a man's business blazer or a tuxedo jacket? I'll layer it over a woman. I'll get his crisp white dress shirt. I'll pop the collar. I'll anchor all this jewelry on her. And I knew in that moment that that was what I was meant to do. Case in point, I've been in this business now for almost 30 years. Case in point, I wrote a book 11 years ago. Case in point, I have always followed you, admired you, and respected you. One of the most defining moments in my career was when we ran into each other on the Upper West Side.
1: I remember at City Diner.
0: And I said, Tim, Lawrence, Zarian, nice to see you again. And you said, oh, I know who you are. And I said, lovely to see you. Always nice to be reconnected. And you said to me, I bought your book.
1: And I did. I was looking forward to show it to you, but I live with too many books.
0: Now, like about 4,000 books, right? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Something to that effect. And the other thing that you said is you said not only did you read it, but you said that you liked it. I learned from it. Stop it. No, it's true. Coming from you, Tim, because I feel I wasn't in the fashion business. I was a model. And I feel like I've always been that odd man out. And I feel that I've been so blessed to learn my craft in this business. Coming from you of all people I've ever worked with in the fashion business, you single-handedly validated me that day that I was at the right place at the right time doing good
1: work. Well, I'm very touched to hear you say that. Thank you. And I have to tell you also... I was an outsider. I certainly wasn't an insider when when I took over the fashion department at Parsons. I was there in my Mr. Fix-It associate dean capacity, yeah. not as a fashion expert. But it's also why I think I succeeded in that role, because I didn't have an axe to grind. I didn't have a curriculum to reflect upon or a particular pedagogy. All that I wanted was students to excel and to Be prepared for what's next in fashion as opposed to just making clothes. It was thrilling and exhilarating. And I have to say, I would not have the courage to do it again today. It was the most challenging assignment I've ever had.
0: Now, that was 1983. So when you stepped into that position.
1: Oh, actually, no, I I came to Parsons in 83. I took the fashion position in 2000.
0: Okay. So when you came to Parsons in 83, you came on to... Spell out exactly what your job position was.
1: Well, first of all, the whole move to New York was meteoric for me and and terrifying for me. I never dreamed I'd leave Washington, D.C. Parsons had offered me a teaching position a year before in 1982, and I turned it down. I said, Thank you very much. I'm very happy here. And it's quite amazing how much your life can change in a year. They came back to me in 1983 and said, We're going to try again. And I said, Well, guess what? I'm ready. So that move alone was daunting. And I was teaching three-dimensional design to students across disciplines. So it was students from illustration, graphic design, fashion, product design, architecture. And I learned a huge amount about design in that first two to three years because I was a fine arts person. And it's a completely different sensibility than design. And it's a completely different process, really. I mean, you're making things, you're drawing, you're sculpting, you're doing whatever you're doing. But as the then chair of fashion said to me when I was making my round of of the departments to learn more about them, he said, no, 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 no. He said, as a sculptor, you have the luxury of time. You can spend a year on a piece of sculpture if you want to. Fashion designers We have to work, 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 work for the season, and then as soon as the season is shown, we have to spin on a dime and do it all over again. We don't have the luxury of reflection or even creative planning. We just have to do it. And it was a very sobering moment for me. So I feel like as though I really grew up in New York and at Parsons, and 2023 I've been in New York now for 40 years. Wow. It's thrilling to me and I feel very proud.
0: Well, let me ask you this then. As a as a kid from DC, you know, it's like, "Hey, what does your dad do?" and I'm like, "Oh, my dad was in politics." "Hey, Timothy, what does your dad do?" "My dad works for the FBI." <laughs> Where did your passion for fashion come from as a kid?
1: It didn't. Really? It wasn't any part of my vocabulary. I mean, I I always wanted to be, I mean, you know, I was a gay kid. I always wanted to be Clean and neat and presentable, but I certainly wasn't following fashion or on the fashion cusp. The only design magazines that I read were about interiors, shelter magazines. And it was coming to New York and learning that New York will accept you however you present yourself, unlike DC. I mean, in DC, you have a uniform and you better not stray from it or you're really the odd person out. But in New York, it embraces whoever you want to be. And if you want to be a chameleon and be something different every day or every week, you can. If you want to just stick by what you know and what you feel comfortable in, that's fine also. Though I will tell you, Diane von Furstenberg has been a a pal for a long time. And when I became chair of the fashion program, she called and said, we should get together. So we did in my office at Parsons and (laughs) she looked me up and down. And I could tell she was hesitant about saying anything, but I could also tell from her body language that there was something unsettling. Uh-oh. She gestured. She said, you have to do something about this. And she gestured to <laughs> me. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you, you're su- such a stiff. You present this image of, of being unwieldy and stuck up, and you got to get with it. <laughs> oh my God. So I thought, what do I do? And I asked her that. And she said, well, I wouldn't dream of telling you what to do. You have, you have to create it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I <laughs> I went to Saks, and I bought a black leather blazer. And it was the most money I've ever spent on an item of clothing in my life. And afterwards, I staggered across Fifth Avenue to the Rockefeller Center complex, where there was a Banana Republic. Well, Banana Republic had the identical jacket, and rather yeah. than being a thousand plus, it was 400. So I bought it. I took the other jacket back. Then I thought, well, this should be my theme. I'll just, I'll just go black, black turtleneck, black dress pants, black shoes. And that was my uniform for many years. And I loved it. And it wasn't until Project Runway, really, that I realized I can't just keep wearing this on the set. It's just too drab, and we need a little bit of color. We need some vibe. So I, I switched things up, but, but that's what Diane von Versenberg did for me.
0: I know, but let me ask you this then. So what was the fashion critique once Diane saw the Tim Gunn transformation?
1: She gestured to me, and she said, nice, which for her is quite a compliment. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things that I want to say, and I've been doing this podcast now for a year and a half. And I always do my research. And it's funny, you should see my desk because I have all these notes and questions that I want to ask you.
1: Ask away, I'm an open book.
0: So here's my, pun intended, with 4,000 books. What I love about you is your authenticity. And because of you and you being so open and authentic, as my television career has continued to evolve, I think of you often with... If Tim Gunn can be so authentic and himself, that's also an opportunity and permission for me to do the same. I don't think you'll ever know how much you've impacted me, who I am, and what I do. Well, it's very, very lovely to hear. Seriously. And how many people have always said to me, you should date Tim Gunn. I love French fries, and I love the Wizard of Oz. Uh, So here's my question, and it's interesting doing my research with you how similar some of our journey has been. You know, you're very open and candid about living in a very homophobic home, and there was a moment in your life where you just didn't want to be here anymore. Yes. Do you remember that pocket and where you were at?
1: Well, I'm going to be very honest with you out of respect Mm -hmm. for you. When I tell this story, I was 17. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was 14. Okay, and I don't want people, young people to know that, really. They know it now. I was at a juncture where I thought, why am I still here? And my parents had just dropped me off at a summer school, boarding school. And I was bereft. I thought, well, this is not a future. And I, I'm going to tell you this, too, just being purely honest. The night that I took all those pills, thinking I've ended it, I don't think i would ever been so relaxed and at peace with myself, ever. So the shock of waking up the next morning really did me in. It was a moment of peace, really. It wasn't a moment of agony and despair. Well, despair, yes. But peaceful despair, if there is such a thing. And when people ask, isn't there something about your background, your past, that you would change? No. Even That horrible business and spending two and a half years in a psychiatric hospital because it makes us who we are. Once we start changing the past, it completely impacts the future. I couldn't feel more lucky and blessed than to be who I am and where I am at this point. And my whole journey, everything informs what we become and our values and our moral and ethical fiber. And I'm just happy that mine are at a high level.
0: I want to, first of all, Thank you for being so open and raw about that. And I also love the fact that you owned the truth of your age instead of seventeen, you're fourteen because, because of social media, because of this phone, because of googling everything. Kids are younger and taking their lives because they feel left out, they feel alone, they feel like they don't belong. And you just owning that truth is going to help a kid that is seeking and searching for identity to know that that can be a choice or you can choose to reach out, ask for help, call the Trevor Project. You can call so many people that will hold your hand. The other thing that you did is, and I don't talk about this, I was the same age. My father didn't have other tools at that time. My father did what he thought. My father loved his boys and just didn't understand. So I was 13 or 14. I as well wanted to end my life. My dad was having a big fundraiser, a big party. And I thought, well, I'm going to show you. And I took all these pills and I've never had anyone repeat my story like you did. Tim, I was at peace. I didn't feel any pain. And it was the first time in my life that I had felt I was okay.
1: I completely and totally empathize. I I understand that. Me too. May I ask you, how was the next day?
0: Sadness, you know, as you know, I have an identical twin. Yes. I stayed closer to him. A lot of that was such a blur in that time because also my parents weren't in a great place. My parents were headed for divorce. Two people that had absolutely no tools to be parents were parents. Two people that literally did the best they could with what they were taught, with what they needed to do at a certain time were just not the right fit. So as I say often, and maybe you feel the same way, I survived it. I survived it. And is your father still living? No. When did he pass? In the 90s. What was that relationship like as you continued to get older? Did you work on have some sort of relationship?
1: No. My father died at age 67. And one doesn't die of Alzheimer's disease, but he had Alzheimer's disease, and okay. he had been in a nursing home for six years, so he was very young. And his mother had died at 67 before I was born, so 1951 or 52, and she died in a mental hospital and were wow. confident, the family's confident that she had Alzheimer's, but they didn't know what it was then, so they just put her away. But watching my father erode, watching, him, watching his life just go away was extremely painful there was one visit to the nursing home that I made with my mother because I was in New York then and when I would come home we would visit dad and I brought a black plastic garbage bag with me and I thought let's just do this or I I wasn't putting any responsibility on my mother I thought I'll do this and she stopped me she said this is not going to turn out well and do not do this but I'll also I don't know whether how close you've been to Alzheimer's but it was interesting Dad was diagnosed when he was 59, and he was in the hospital for uh, bleeding ulcers, and he kept tearing out his IVs, and it was Thanksgiving. So on Thanksgiving Day, when we went to visit him, a social worker met us, my mother, my sister, and me, and told us that this disease would tear our family apart, that we would face unimaginable financial ruin. And the social work worker looked at my mother and said, and your husband will lose his soul. Well, when we got out in the parking lot, my mother said, how dare she make all these presumptions and, and cast these predictions upon us and losing a soul. Well, I have to tell you, Lawrence, once a year we would take the family dog Raffles to see dad in the nursing home. And the first time we took Raffles, Raffles leaped out of my arms, ran down the hall. She'd never been in this place. And ran right into his room, jumped up on his bed, and she's licking him all over. Well, the last Christmas, I was with my sister and Raffles, and there's no reaction. We put Raffles on the bed. She's looking at this person as though, who is this? And I looked at my sister, and I said, he's lost his soul. Wow. And I'm confident that that was the case. I'm confident. I mean, dogs intuit everything that there was something about him. The smell was gone. Any recognition was gone. It was bizarre, but I'll never get over it as long as I live. And I thought, well, that social worker was right about one thing. Well,
0: are you at peace with your father?
1: Yes, I'm definitely at peace. I do reflect frequently about conversations that I wish we'd had, Mm. but it was very hard. I can be very, very stubborn and recalcitrant and, I I just didn't want to open the, open new doors, though I, <laughs> I will tell you this. There was more than one occasion when I thought, my father's a closet case.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which is why he was so
0: homophobic. It totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. My dad did what he was taught. My dad did all he knew. My dad didn't have a father. My grandfather was an alcoholic. You know, I talk about this all the time. I've been sober now for over 18 years. Oh, that's wonderful. I think, (laughs) look, the fact that you love Manhattans breaks my heart Uh, because a Manhattan was one of my favorites, just the right amount of this and that and that cherry. I mean, I can smell it, I can taste it, but through my 12-step program, I learned how to communicate with my father differently. And
1: Oh, interesting.
0: I said to my dad at one point, because I was the son that had the mouth. I went through a troubled childhood. And as soon as I got older, I said to my dad, you'll never do that again. And I stepped away from him. We did not have a relationship for a while. And then when my mother passed, it's funny, it's interesting how people pay attention. You know, My mother was the sweetest thing in the world, Doris. She died at 58 as an alcoholic and a smoker, and it was right in front of my face. But my mother would always call me when I would land, when my career was taking off, and she'd say, honey, please make sure that you call me when you land. So that was our date. We always had that dance. Uh So when my mother passed, everybody heartbroken, devastated, but I had a trip. I really went back into work because that was gonna help me get back into some sort of rhythm. I flew to Texas and had no relationship really with my father, was very, very combative. And the phone rings and I said, hey dad. And he said, I hate that your mother passed. I know that you two had a conversation every time you landed in a new city. I'm going to ask you a favor. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, can I pick that up? And to me, that was the first step. Then he made a step. Then I made another step. That's a
1: profound first step.
0: Want, hope, and desire. And we had breakfast every Saturday. I asked him 800,000 questions. And Tim, what I realized and what I tell everyone is – I don't believe parents ever set out to destroy their children, ever. I agree. Hey, welcome to the world. I'm going to destroy you. I think parents do the best they can with what they're taught or all they know in that moment. Now, the tools now are amazing. You can Google anything. But my dad, who was so against me being gay, Hmm. understood, found a new way to love me. And one of the last things he ever said to me was, "I love you, sweetheart, and I hope you find a nice man." Oh, what a beautiful step evolution, but when I asked him all these questions on how he raised me, none of it had anything to do with me, Tim. I was just collateral damage in what he knew and what he thought was the right choice at the right time. It was never about me. Well, what do you think what do you think your dad would say of your success? <laughs>
1: I'm sure he would have mixed feelings about it. There's no reason for you to know this, but at one juncture quite a number of years ago, there was a Tim Gunn Barbie. It wasn't that Barbie looked like Tim Gunn, but the clothes were Tim Gunn approved, the, the 10 essential items that should be in every woman's wardrobe. And I was on Fallon, and Fallon had the doll and the clothes. And I said, you know, if my father wor- weren't already dead, this would kill him. Kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you this though, Lawrence, you know, I was a mama's boy. My father though, was the one who was always there when I had a crisis. He was always there helping, supporting. And my mother was a wreck. My mother would completely fall apart and be unusable as a parent. And I guess if I could say anything to my father, I'd like to thank him for being there at those really tough moments. And they were tough for him. I knew that, but he was
0: there. I love that you can find that. Because I feel that so many people spend their lives hating that moment in their life, those moments in their life, which are painful, heartbreaking, devastating. But I also look, as you said earlier on, that's just sort of like the tapestry of who we are. And if that didn't happen, if you didn't have those experiences, how do you know that you wouldn't be this loving, kind, compassionate man that basically helps guide and hold the hand of so many people to hold their hand to their success and to the next phase of their journey?
1: Well, thank you. Yes. I mean, that's why I say I wouldn't change anything. I just wouldn't.
0: So let me ask you this. So when when Project Runway started, and let me also just say this, a lot of people don't want to talk about their past and their childhood and things like that. And to me, if we talk about it and somebody else can hear our story, it doesn't make them feel so alone. So I appreciate that level of honesty and transparency and rawness. Because I believe that we're meant to be moved, like God moves us like chess pieces. I'm going to move you here. I'm going to move you to Parsons. Hey, there's a show coming up and we're looking we're looking for somebody in the fashion business. Hey, Tim Gunn, we just want you to chat with contestants, which I love that you never had any idea that they were going to utilize you so much, right?
1: Oh, never in a million years, never. You know, initially I was, I was a consultant. My role on the show didn't even exist. And it was two days before the designers were arriving that the producers... Came to me and said, How would you feel about going into the workroom and asking the designers what they're doing? And I said, well, That's how I've spent most of my life. So, sure. But I never dreamed I'd be in the cut of the show. I was very aware of camera placement. There was a camera on me, there was a camera on the designer. And I thought, as long as I have the designer responding to my questions, no one needs to see me. No one needs to hear my voice. And as I said, I never dreamed I'd be in the cut of the show, which is why I didn't go to the premiere of it. Because I thought, if I'm not in the show, yeah. it'll be kind of humiliating. And if I am, I don't want to see what I look like.
0: <laughs> wow. So if you're not in the show, that's a double Manhattan night. Yes.
1: <laughs> or maybe being in the show was a double Manhattan night. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: So then when when it all started to happen, because you literally lightning in a bottle. It took off. Are you shy by nature?
1: Yes. And very introverted. In fact, I'm probably the only person who liked the um, quarantine of the pandemic.
0: (laughs) You know what? I am the polar opposite. I'm an extrovert. I know. And I hate that I don't do it anymore. I hugged the world. Hi. Oh my God. Hi. Like I hugged everyone but now I've learned how to be an extrovert, introvert, and I've learned so many different things about myself. So then let me ask you this, as a extreme introvert, then how did you navigate your stardom and your instant rise to success?
1: Well, I never assume anything. And for me, the rise certainly didn't seem instant. As a matter of fact, I was in a production van driving to home visits of the season one designers and one of the producers was in the van on the phone, and it was evident that she was on the phone with a Bravo executive. And she kept saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Only three episodes had aired at that point, and the ratings were terrible. So we were in a snowstorm, and I said to this individual, if the show's going to be canceled midstream, why are we making this trip in the snow? Yeah, yeah, if everyone is at risk. But then Bravo had... an An innovative at that time idea of just rerunning those first three episodes over and over and over and i made that whole set of circumstances analogous to cilantro Mm. the first time you have cilantro you think what is this and the second time you think huh it's kind of interesting and the third time you're hooked and you want cilantro with everything And I think that was the Project Runway startup, the same thing. But I also never dreamed there'd be a season two, let alone, for Heidi and me, 16 seasons.
0: What you've said when it comes to being a mentor, the designers are responsible for their decisions. So I never feel like I should have said that. I'm constantly reminding the designers that this is your work, not mine. So you have to own it. Where did that philosophy come from? Because I feel like that's your gold standard. This is your work, not mine. I'm just observing and sharing thoughts.
1: Well, it came from a point of departure of my own personal survival. I thought I don't want to feel this huge heaping amount of guilt when the designers go home, when the judges don't like their work, and I would say with just as much vigor, I accept absolutely no responsibility for their successes either. It's not me, it's it's them. And I also say it because I'm const- I am constant. I was constantly telling them, you can't be second guessing the judges. All that you can do is listen to your own voice because who knows with the judges what will actually come down the pike. We don't know. So unless you're happy with, with what you're doing, it doesn't matter. And actually, I have to say with all sincerity, Lawrence, that's how I navigate my life. Every job I've ever had, I have to be able to live with myself. And if something's happening that I think is, well, first of all, if it's something that I just feel morally and ethically I can't do, I'm going to say so. But I will also say this you probably know this about me. If it's something that you can change, I'll tell you about it. I'll tell you if you have spinach in your teeth, I'll pick lint off of your lapel. But if we're together and we're in a restaurant and I don't like your pants, Shut up, Tim. What difference is, I mean, what are you going to do? Run to your car and get a second pair? So I, I really believe about telling, or at least talking to people about things that they can change. And going back to my the mentoring, my greatest joy is watching or being able to be with the designer and observing them getting it. If I probe enough, if I ask enough questions, my, my goal is to get them to see what I'm seeing without Having to say it myself.
0: So let me ask you this then. One of the things that I would love is I would love sort of the challenge between you and a designer. So when a designer has a specific point of view and then you've looped in and said, Oh, you start second guessing them. There has to be a struggle because number one, I respect somebody saying, Nope, I like this. I'm sticking to it. But here you're the expert saying, No, this isn't going to work. Do you respect the designer for their choice of self? Or are you frustrated because they're just not looking outside of their box?
1: Well, a lot of that depends upon where we are in the the season, how far we've gone on the journey. I tend to be a blunter instrument when there are only a few designers left because I don't want anyone to go home. Earlier in the season, there are people I think, you know, just throw yourself under the bus. (laughs) I don't have to do it. You're going to do it on your own. (laughs) But later in the season, the moment that I remember most potently and the moment that I struggled with the most was a point when the designers in season 13 were creating their last look for the the runway. And that would determine who among them was going on to New York Fashion Week. And Sean Kelly, who won that season, came back from mood with this... Insipid it's out of my vocabulary because no one uses the color anymore. Please say pews because nobody says pews enough. <laughs> no one says pukes No. But if there is a reason why it sounds like puke, you'll know it's a green and it sounds like cilantro. Okay. It's a um pastel green. Anyway, at any rate, I said to Sean, you can't use this. You you just you can't. This is going to cost you fashion week. Can't do it. And he had he had some other fabrics, but he was Confident that this look would be head to toe, whatever. I was expecting the producers to haul me outside and say, "Uh, uh, 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 you can't do that. You you went too far." But I knew how talented he is. It was and is, and I thought this is—he's lost sight of where he is. And of course, by the end of the season, the designers are drained. They have nothing yeah. left mentally, creatively, physically. They're wrecks. And I thought he just—he made a misstep, and I'm here to help correct it. But generally speaking, it's only near the end of the season when I get to be that blunt or when I choose to be that blunt.
0: Are there designers that you've mentored over the years from Project Runway to making the cut that continue to have a soft spot in your heart where didn't win, came in, came out a little too soon, but you know that there's something there. And if that is indeed the case, can you, will you still connect with them and help guide them?
1: Oh, that's definitely the case that that I still have emotional ties to, to many of the designers. I, I have a, a pact with myself, though. I don't reach out to the designers unless they reach out to me. And If they do reach out, I respond. But I, I don't want to be that person who's saying, hey, let's get, get together for lunch. If they say, say it to me, I do. I will also say, though, and this was the reason Heidi and I left Project Runway and were so lucky to have landed. Amazon Studios with Making the Cut. We knew that for a designer to really succeed today, and it's very different today than it was 20 years ago when Project Runway began, to succeed today, you've got to have a broad reach and a lot of support and buttressing. And that's what Amazon provided. And it's why the Making the Cut designers are more visible, have enjoyed more success in many ways. Which is not to say the runway designers aren't su- successful. Of course, many of them are. Case in point, Christian Siriano. I mean, well, literally. Christian, but then you have someone like Alexander Knox, also from season. Yeah, 13. loved
0: Alexander. Yeah,
1: he's the head designer at Coach. So that's not small potatoes. But his name isn't on the brand.
0: No, but what you've done is you've gone from designers designing clothing to creating. A global fashion brand. Exactly. Underneath that umbrella comes all of it: marketing, branding, the image, the shape. And you know who I think has done that very well? And yes, I saw him win. And yes, I googled where his store was. And yes, he is so hot. And yes, my favorite jumpsuits are by oh, Johnny Johnny Coda. Yeah, yeah. Such good work and tried and true to his vision, his inspiration. And what he believes in.
1: And also, he is a doll. He's just the loveliest human being.
0: How many times do you think I've asked him out? (laughs) A lot. (laughs) And at one point, one point when his eyes rolled, I was like, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'll just take the jumpsuit and I'll go home with my tail between my legs. But I tried. Isn't he Damn. a lovely guy? Lovely and kind. And I keep asking him to let me move in with him in ballet because he's got this beautiful I know. life that he's created in ballet. Life is all about relationships. So let me ask you this. Why do you and Heidi work?
1: We are the oddest couple, not only in fashion, but in all of media.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And I think that's why we work. I mean, first of all, we have a sincere affection for each other and great respect in many ways, we couldn't be more different. I' in fact, when we have red carpet events, I will not walk it without her. If she's not with me, I take the back door into wherever we're going. She has a coming coming influence over me, and it's you know it's it's in many ways it's that proverbial opposites attract, but I, I will tell you too, even now, Lawrence. 20 years into our partnership, I'm still a little intimidated. She is so breathtakingly beautiful and so at ease in the world and exudes such confidence without being cocky that I just, I stand in awe. I really do. She's a remarkable person.
0: I love that. You know, that's how I used to feel about. Uh, I was on live with Regis and Kelly for twenty years. Regis ended up being a very good friend, but there was always this part of me that was in awe. Like I get to walk around that corner and work with this legend, and B, I get to call him my friend, and C, wow. And I think as soon as you give up on that, I feel like then you're throwing away what that moment is. So I love I love that you have that what would you say like not awkwardness but wow, look who I get to stand next to. All the time. All the time. Yes. Now what does gosh, I wish my German accent was going better. <laughs> <laughs> so if Heidi was going to speak about you, what would Heidi say about you? I don't think I want to contemplate it. <laughs> Oh, just do it with me. So what do you think if Heidi's having dinner with girlfriends or things like that? And somebody said, well, tell me what you love about Tim.
1: Well, I will say this, and and she says it with some frequency. She calls me her TV husband, which I think is the most flattering love. thing anyone could hear in my position. And it says a lot about our closeness um, and our trust. And I love it when she
0: says it. And there is something about trust. I'm one of those people, you betray my trust once, you don't come back. Because to me, trust is earned. It's received, it's given, it's gained, but I can understand a whoops, but to me, once trust is broken, you rarely get a second shot. When it comes to making the cut, season three, the winner wins a million dollars. In today's market, how far do you see a million dollars going?
1: Well, I fully understand your question, but to put the million dollars in a context, you also have a storefront digitally in Amazon fashion. And you have a mentorship with Amazon Fashion, which having spent a day at Amazon Fashion in Seattle, I don't know that I've ever been with a smarter, more intuitive group of people ever. They're phenomenal. And their anticipation of the future is just extraordinary. And what an opportunity that, that is for a designer to be able to, to mentor with that group. The learning curve is inestimable.
0: And you can't put a price tag on You really it. can't education. So yes, you're winning the million dollars. So it sort of aligns with my father would always say, you know what? I can take you out and buy you dinner, or I can take you out and teach you how to fish. So you eat for the rest of your life. Yeah. Your father was right. Yeah. So they win the million. They taught how to do so many other things that they didn't know how to do. So it's building that brand. So here's the thing. You are a mentor. You're a host. You get the judge. Why is season three? Why are the judges more at each other's throats than they have been? It's Nicole Richie, Jeremy Scott, and Heidi. From what I've seen, there's more heated conversation than there's ever been. Why is season three different than the others?
1: Well, I don't want to denigrate for a moment the designers on either season one or season two. They were fantastic. But the designers on season three had the benefit of seeing what the designers on seasons one and two went through and... They were a very self-selecting group in terms of of auditioning because they knew how high the stakes were and they knew what they were up against. So in many ways, they were the most competitive group of designers in terms of quality of work, not in terms of interpersonal relationships. They didn't feel competitive at all, which I love. They were really kindred spirits who were there to support each other. But for the judges, it meant that there was more of of an emotional and even... I think, intellectual investment and the success of those designers. So whenever they would disappoint, they got a little crazy. One challenge in particular, one assignment in particular. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't like it. I had on my teacher hat. There's no reason to yell. You're holding all of the power. You don't have to abuse that power. You can just speak softly and make your point. They're listening to you. But to shout and throw things? No, it's just not necessary.
0: So then where do you find your balance? Are you, as you said, you had your teacher hat on, because I feel like you have to walk this very fine line. How do you walk the fine line? And have you ever had over from Project One Right even now to making the cut where you've stepped in and said, hey, guys, this isn't working, or hey, guys, you've got to shift this or adjust it. How do you use their voice when somebody else is using their voice a lot louder?
1: Are you referring to the judges, Lawrence? Yes. Oh, to the judges. judges. Oh,
0: oh. (laughs) When it's you with the contestants, you're point one, like you're the North Star. But when you're seeing these judges fight and you see them being very passionate, and I think people express passion in such different ways, I, like you, like calm, controlled, choose your words how do you get involved can you get involved do you not get involved well there's
1: an occasional slip up on my part (laughs) where i do step in because i have something that i want the judges to hear and the person who reminds me that i have no business there and have no voice is heidi (laughs) she'll say go away we don't need to hear from you. You had your opportunity with the designers. This is about us. It's not about you. Okay. <laughs> and I tiptoe away. So when I anticipate going in, I know that I'm gonna have that roadblock. But you know, Lawrence, that's not old. I mean, it is true. The times when I get most heated with the judges and I really and I don't shut up, I just keep getting louder and more forceful is when it's a finale and it's about deciding a winner. And there was one instance on Project Runway where I was so incensed and enraged by who was winning that I left the set. I wasn't there to congratulate the person and the person's family. And I didn't watch that episode, so I don't know how the producers cut around it, but they had to because I wasn't there. But I thought, I am not standing here saying congratulations to this, excuse me, asshole.
0: Coming from you... You made a stand and that had to be such an important one. Do you still stand by the choice you made?
1: Oh, yes. Love it.
0: I love it because a lot of people use their voice and make a stand and then they go back with their tail between their legs and say, can I fix this? Can I do it? Uh, I love that you are a person that stands by your convictions. And the other thing that I have always loved and respected about you is, you know, when I first started doing fashion segments, Early on, they said, you know, we want you to use this size model, that size model, this size oh. model. And I said, No, no, but hold on, we need we need a plus size. I like that, that term has been transitioned into curvy because to me there's something sexier and more appealing about curvy. So I call them my curvy girls. I love that you said, no uh-uh, we have to have all representation. And I so align with that because I've never done one fashion show that did not celebrate women of all shapes ages and glorious sizes. And case in point, I was the spokesperson, lead spokesperson for Lane Bryant for 20 years. Yes.
1: Oh, I know. I know. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of the brand.
0: Lane Bryant, Eloquii, I think has done it beautifully. Yeah. yeah. But why do you feel then so many designers still to this day, especially American? Designers in the fashion arena still don't embrace a curvy woman?
1: Well, when I was at Liz Claiborne and I was there for seven years, and, and at the time, at the beginning of my term there as chief creative officer, there were 48 brands. And I was deeply interested in and, and advocate for more sizes. And I was doing fashion shows with four or five brands all over the country with a, with a fantastic team. And I went to the design directors and asked, you know, there's only money to be made here. Why aren't you addressing this? And you want to know what the answer was? It was unilateral. I don't want her wearing my clothes. Disgraceful. Disgraceful.
0: Oh. Yeah. It is one of my life's greatest joys when a curvy woman comes up to me yeah. and says, thank you for seeing me. And I'm like, oh my God, seeing you, you look sexy as Ow who doesn't want to see you look good?
1: Well, I have to tell you, on Project Runway, it wasn't until the last season that Heidi and I had, season 16, that we were successful persuading the network that we had to do this. We had been advocating it for years, and no, 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 no. And finally, we could do it.
0: And you've been doing that and making the cut, which I love. I love seeing all representation. And the fact that you have designers from Switzerland, New York, Brazil, Canada, England, Illinois, Georgia, California. Thank you. Yes. Let me ask you this, because I always struggle with this. And I always struggle when somebody runs up to me and says, and people are more times than not, people are kind. Sometimes people get a little, They and I'm sure you've you experienced this a lot more than I do. I think I don't. <laughs> well, because people know you, they see you, they know we're not playing characters, we are ourselves. And what you see is what you get. I don't try to be anything anymore. You like me, great. You don't. Agreed. You just don't. But when people run up to me, oh my God, Lawrence, I I just saw you on Kelly Clarkson. Okay, so do you like this dress? And I'm like, and I find, I find that I've been trained. Well, I find instinctually, I always look for what I like the best because I think it's so easy to see what you don't like. So I will always find something like, I think your haircut's pretty, I love those shoes. And then I find That I'm stuck because then I will come back and say, first of all, thank you for saying hello. Number one. Number two, are you being honest and authentic and genuinely want to know what I feel at this moment? And do you have time to fix it and change it if it's not aligned with where your head's at? Good questions. And then somebody will say, yes, yes, yes. And then I give the adjustment and then they debate me on why my adjustment was wrong. Oh, We rest our case. How do you handle that? Because you're navigating through New York. You take the subway. You're always on (laughs) foot. How do you handle that when somebody comes up and says something and they want your fashion critique?
1: I first ask them, well, what do you think? Is this how you dress all the time? Is this new for you? How are you feeling about this look? Are you feeling confident? And generally I want to support, well, though I often quote Lucy Ricardo, (sighs) From an episode called Lucy Tells the Truth. She's at a bridge party at Carolyn Applebee's, and, and Marion Strong enters with this outrageous hat. And Lucy has to tell the truth, or she's going to lose this 24-hour bet. So the other people at the bridge party are praising Marion and the hat's gorgeous and how wonderful. And Marion turns to Lucy and says, Lucy, you haven't said anything. And Lucy's covering her eyes and she says, um, Just sit down, Marion. No, Lucy, what do you think about about the hat? She says, Well, if that's the kind of hat you wanted, you sure have a good one. Perfect response. So if that's
0: the kind of dress you wanted, certainly have a good one. I love the fact that I am old enough to know Lucy Ricardo and I'm old enough to know and remember Carolyn Appleby. (laughs) My favorite person. (laughs) Those are great shows. What makes you feel sexy? If you had to grab something from your wardrobe, is there something that you put on that makes you feel sexy?
1: You know, I don't know that I would ever say about myself that I feel sexy. I feel at my best when I have clothes that fit me well. Okay. I will say that. And I will also say, I don't walk around my house looking like this, Lawrence. I got dressed like this for you.
0: Well, I want to tell you this. Well, first of all, for you, I'm wearing sweatpants. Number one, sweatpants on the bottom. polo on the top but if you can see over my shoulder I've got a I was going to wear this it is a double breasted Brooks Brothers seersucker suit number 1 Oh I love seersucker double breasted so yeah. fantastic
1: and we looked so great in it
0: And everybody says oh that's seersucker and I'm like it, like it's literally like random Oh that's seersucker it is and I layered that with a Todd Snyder French Terry polo.
1: You know, I've only recently discovered Todd S- Snyder. I love
0: the brand. It's great and what they do. I wore something last night, high-waisted pants. I tucked in my polo shirt, this French Terry polo shirt, and everybody said, you leaning into that late thirty, early 40s vibe, that Hollywood sort of walking yeah. around your house, and I'm like, I like it.
1: Yeah. Well, since you confessed about wearing sweatpants right now, I'll- Confess about my lower half. I'm just wearing my
0: underpants. (laughs) Okay, I'm so mad at myself. I'm so pissed off because when you sat down, I was like, okay, Tim, brief for boxers. But I thought that's not appropriate. Briefs. Briefs. Because (laughs) boxers bunch up underpants that fit you. I'm so angry at myself that I didn't ask you that. So I do a boxer brief. If I'm wearing something form-fitting, I will do a tidy whitey. But as I've gotten older, when I get home, throw on me some boxer shorts and a tank top I've got it going on.
1: You're home. Why not? Can I tell you my issue with boxer briefs? Tell me. They still roll up. And if you're wearing a a tidy whitey, a real brief brief, there's no place for it to go. It just stays where it is.
0: (laughs) Okay. You're right. But it depends on the perfect boxer brief. I still stay tried and true to my Calvin Klein. I think he's done that so well. Yeah. Now, the podcast is called You Are Beautiful with Lawrence Zarian. And it was designed post-pandemic. I'm a different person. I'm not the same person anymore. I went from being an extreme extrovert to an extrovert introvert. I look at things differently. I look at the world differently. Mm-hmm. I look at myself differently. I'm not the same person. I, I've i changed in so many ways from who I am now spending more time on my own because I couldn't be with my twin brother because there was that pandemic phase. He's married. We don't see each other as much, but we still see each other all the time. So I've evolved and I've grown. And when I look in the mirror, I see more age. I see Mm. more wisdom. And Mm. I see a man that is constantly seeking. That is what I see when I look in the mirror. Those are good things. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? I see an old man.
1: (laughs) And I think, how did this happen? But I wouldn't go backwards a day. I just wouldn't. And I'm proud of it. And I just, I'm going to own it. When Runway started, my mother was this ferocious nag about how I should dye my hair. I'm not dyeing my hair. It's not going to happen. And then she said, well, lie about your age. Lie about my age. For for what purpose? I'm proud of it. I'm just resigned to being who I am and owning it. And... I feel a certain amount of pride in that. I will say this, though. I say about myself, I have absolutely no ego. You can say anything about me. You can basically do anything to me. I mean, up to a point. It's that I bend and bend and bend until I snap. But I am vain. So I want to look look good, but not to the extent of having cosmetic surgery or anything of that sort. In fact, don't men who have cosmetic surgery just look dreadful? They look like they've been in a fire.
0: I think it depends on what you do and what you have done, because I think there are subtle adjustments that can be done. I think when somebody tries to completely change and make those drastic changes, I think you're making a big misstep. I agree. Look, I'm a big fan of an adjustment. And if it makes me feel better, I mean, I did my teeth so long ago. I had my ears pinned back. I've done adjustments and it's things that I've done that have made me feel better.
1: Well, and that's very important, but, but also there are not things that people would look at and say, what did Lawrence do? You know?
0: Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Well, I will say, who knows where he's drinking his punch from? Rablo. Oh, I know. What amazing. is that? Is I, he bathing in blood? <laughs> what is that? I don't know. We have to figure that out. I want to find that out. Last person I want with last personal question. I haven't asked any personal questions. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. I find you charming and handsome and engaging and interesting and interested and all of that. Why have you chosen to stay single?
1: Well, I had a very intense relationship for nine years, the only relationship I've ever had. And when that relationship ended, I have never felt so devastated and so hurt. And I was the person who was dumped. And later, I never felt so angry about the whole thing because it was 1982 was the advent of AIDS. My partner told me that though I'd been monogamous, that he'd been sleeping around. I thought, once I came to from this devastation, I thought he very well may have given me a death sentence, yeah, and whenever I felt an emotional connection with another person that was beginning to swell but was beginning to grow, something in me shuts it down because I just I don't want to go through that again and people have said to me, well, you're very selfish and self-centered. that's not good, but it's self-protection. and I have to say, I've grown to like my own company. I'm perfectly fine. I've never been bored a day in my life. And all through the pandemic, when we were shut in, I was never at a loss for things to do and things that I wanted to do. So I'm very content and I feel very lucky. I know people who can't be alone and have to be doing things and be with people. And I just feel very lucky that I can be home
0: alone and read a book and feel very fulfilled. Don't you feel then that your books have become your lovers, your partner's? Your companion.
1: I'd love to say that. I, I, I'm i
0: going to quote you. Yes. Thank you. I do. Yeah. And each one is a world. I wish that that was more of my character. I have spent my life with pure happiness, going out and saying hello to everybody, like hugging everybody and being out in the world. And I find that one of the hardest things for me to do was be at home, constantly, constantly loving my career and seeking my career and going after my career. And right now, some big things are happening. And knowing that all of that wouldn't have happened, all of this stuff that's about to happen wouldn't have happened unless I did that. And now I find myself, especially with not being around Gregory, now mind you, He's married to the most beautiful man, John. We are the three musketeers. It's lovely to see a relationship steeped in honesty, integrity, kindness. They like each other. But when the three of us go out, I come home alone and I navigate that. Like I've had relationships here, there, and I chose my career to be my relationship. Mm -hmm. And now, with what's about to happen, at the end of the day, Tim. I want somebody to put my arms around or have them put their arms around me and say, you know what? You're going to be okay today. I don't need it because I survived without it, but it would be nice to have that little sort of somebody else holding my hand. That's sort of the space that I'm in right now.
1: I appreciate and respect that. Speaking for myself, I'm the exact opposite. Hmm. If I'm out for the evening for some reason, which I avoid these days, but if I am, and that includes tonight, I'm so happy to come home and just have an empty house and be by really? myself. For me, it's restorative, it's healing, and I get myself back.
0: Like you recharge, you plug yourself. Yeah, back in. yeah. But but I'm I'm a
1: lot older than you. And God, I love you, Tim. You're my best <laughs> friend right now. Ha. How old are you? 70. No. Yeah.
0: When did that happen? July 29th. I'm telling you this right now. You obviously have some Dorian Gray thing going on. No. Tim Gunn, Google your face right now. (laughs) You look the exact same.
1: No, Lawrence, you're coming. Wow.
0: I'm not blowing hot air up those brief asses. There is, no, I'm not. Because I thought it was 63. Wow. you Well.
1: Turning 70 was tough. The only other birthday that really impacted me the same, same way was turning 29. So I thought, this is the last of the 20s. And I've been fine ever
0: since. But then turning 70, it just sounds so old. But again, so young. So let me ask you this then. I'm going to ask you. I have two favors to ask you. Sure. For somebody that is on the precipice of doing something really big in a fashion arena, making the cut, building a brand and things like that. What advice would you give me in taking that next step?
1: You and the next step should meet each other organically. I would say don't chase it. In my experience, whenever we chase something, it eludes us. It just doesn't happen. And
0: make no assumptions and just see where it goes. I love that. Don't assume. Don't assume it. Also, don't assume and get also get out of the way. Yeah. Sometimes the way I do things, big missteps, but the ne- missteps are the reasons I fall down and then get up and I do it differently.
1: I love missteps for just that reason. We learn from them. That's where make it work came from. Because my students, if, if they were struggling, they wanted to start all over again. No, you're going to sit down. You're going going to offer up a diagnosis of what's going wrong and a prescription for how to make it work. We learn things from that. We have more resources and more of that work capable of doing when the next problem presents itself, because we know it will. No, I'm I'm all for missteps,
0: providing we learn. So instead of throwing the problem away, figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. Would you, for me, please say, Lawrence, make it work?
1: (laughs) Lawrence, make it work. Though Mm -hmm. I have to say you always make it work for me.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm a work in progress. I have one favor to ask, and then I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. I'm going to be spending a lot more time in New York.
1: Oh, good. We have to get together.
0: I would love to get together, and I would love for us to stroll the Upper West Side. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I love a stroll. And I love the Upper West Side. I would also love you to let me go with you one day on one of your weekly adventures to the Met. Oh, I'd be thrilled. And we'll have lunch in the dining room that overlooks the park. Tim, I would love that more than anything in the world. Well, so would
1: I. That would be thrilling. I'm going to hold you to that. We can walk across the park from the Upper West
0: Side to the Met. Oh, my God. That seriously would bring me so much joy.
1: Well, we'll do it. I'm I'm looking forward to it already. Get here.
0: (laughs) Over the entirety of my career, every time I've interviewed you, you've been kind, you've been giving, you've been considerate. You've also been very, very joyful, and I respect you on so many levels. I also have learned so much about who I am through your eyes. Oh, well...
1: I just have to say that the the reason I can be this way with you is because you're you. Thank you. I'm not this way with everyone.
0: Oh, thank you. And I have such
1: respect and affection for you and and admiration. And also, you make having a conversation easy.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. People have always said, do this in person and all of that. And to me, you're at home and in your underwear. I'm at home in my sweatpants. (laughs) And there's there's something very intimate about it. And I've spent the last hour and a half Looking in your eyes and seeing you, and has it been an hour and a half? Hour and a half. Hour and a half. I would have said thirty minutes. Hour and a half. Good longest rela- longest relationship I've had with another man in a long time. <laughs> well, I'm flattered, and same for me. <laughs> I haven't gotten a man in his underpants in a long time. You showed up ready to play. So, then do me a favor as we wrap up. I want you to respond to this for me. The podcast is called You're Beautiful. So do me a favor, answer this question and say, I, Tim Gunn, am beautiful because?
1: I, Tim Gunn, am beautiful because I have a curious mind. I allow things to pull at my heartstrings. And I'm hugely emotional when it comes to the triumph of the human spirit.
0: You can tell with everything you do, you are that person in the wings, rooting for everyone to do their best.
1: I can't help myself.
0: I cannot wait to see you sooner than later and for us to stroll arm in arm and go to the mat. I can't wait either. Thank you. Tim Gunn, I love you so much.
1: And I love you too, Lawrence. Thank you. This has been a joy, a joy.
0: Now that was a beautiful ride, and speaking of beautiful, I want to thank Dr. Stacy J. Stevenson for going on this ride with us. When it comes to feeling good, it all starts from the inside out, and it's time for everyone to get their glow on. Now, go out and have a beautiful day. Ready, set, glow!